Good evening, everyone. Well, we, uh, it's nice to see that the elect are here, you know, so. Now, that's not to say that those of you on TV are not elect, but uh, to come out in a storm like this, uh, I think you, you know, you're probably one of them. And uh, so appreciate that. I mean, uh, when we usually, uh, usually if I've had a situation like this on a Sunday evening in my prior church, it was snow. It really wasn't rain, but, but we'll take it uh, nonetheless, because we know that uh, this ministry uh, goes forward, not just here, but uh, through the airways. We're very grateful for Shell Point Television, and we know that there are many watching this evening who uh, were unable to, uh, uh, to come out in uh, what is a you know, pretty tricky, tricky kind of weather. So we're thankful for that, uh, that you're here, and for those of you who are watching uh, through Shell Point Television, that's uh, very encouraging. Um, l- let me ask you a question. How do you feel about something when it goes bad, when it breaks, for instance? Uh, so, for instance, let me give you a couple of examples. Uh, imagine a, a little child wandering around your house Maybe you're, you know, you're the grandparent or something, and uh, your house isn't exactly childproof, and maybe the, the little, little tyke uh, throws something like a ball and knocks something off of the, the whatnot shelf or something along those lines, and it breaks. How would you, how would you feel about that if, if your grandchild did that, if the child broke a vase? Well, it sort of depends, doesn't it? Depends on what kind of vase it was. If it was a, a, a vase that you picked up with a $12 flower arrangement at Publix, it's probably no big deal, right? But if they happen to knock off the 6th century antique Mayan figurine, then we might be upset, right? So the, uh, the quality of what is broken uh, really uh, determines how we feel about something. Uh, a number of years ago, I was in a car accident. This most recent car accident, I was driving a, uh, uh, a, a rental car, so it doesn't fit as, as, a, as an illustration, so we can forget the most recent accident. But back in 1983, I was in another accident. Uh, we were, I was driving a 1967 Chevelle Malibu, or Chevrolet Malibu, and, uh, you know, it was, the accident was 1983. This was a 67 car. It was like 16 years old. Our family, by the way, was famous for uh, never having a car in the decade in which we were living. And and so we were always driving old cars. And so this was one of those cases. And we were rear-ended by a a drunk driver, and the car was totaled. Uh, How did I feel about that? Well, not so bad, quite honestly, because uh, I probably got more out of the insurance deal than I would have if I tried to sell it. And so it really was no big deal that a 16-year-old car got uh, totaled. Now, if I'd been driving a late model BMW that cost $70,000, I might have, been, uh, might have been more concerned about that. Uh, just for the record, I've never owned a late model BMW and uh, never, of course, then had an accident with it. But, of course, the idea is that the, the, more, uh, the, the higher the quality of what happens to be damaged, Uh, the more significant it is, the more uh, serious it is. So the principle that I want to lay before you this evening as we continue to explore uh, the book of Jeremiah, the better something is to begin with, the worse it is when it gets corrupted. Let me say that again. The better something is to begin with, the worse it is when it gets corrupted. 
Um, there's a similar principle. The magnitude of sin is proportional to the value of the object that is affected. And so you need to understand that sin against God is no mere peccadillo. Because God is eternal, and he is holy, and he is altogether lovely, the scriptures tell us. And so sin against God carries the worst possible consequences. And that's why eternal destruction is called for when God is sinned against, because sin is against the most valuable being in all of the universe. It's far more significant than a sixth century Mayan artifact. So speaking of the elements of the created world, the better something is, the worse it is when it gets corrupted or destroyed. Something really valuable gets corrupted. It's an awful shame. Now, this has been known by a lot of people over the centuries. Shakespeare wrote this, for fairest things grow foulest by foul deeds. He wrote, lilies that fester smell far worse than weeds. Aristotle had a Latin saying that he coined, corruptio optimi pessimi, which means the better the thing, the worse the abuse. The better the thing, the worse the abuse. Corruption in the best is the worst corruption. Corruption of the best becomes the worst corruption. Now in Jeremiah chapter 13, if you have a Bible and you're following along, that's the chapter that we're in, there are five images of awful shame for the people of Judah. It's shameful because those which are meant to be the best turn out to be the worst because of their sin. Uh, the first example, the first image is of a linen belt. And so we pick up the story in Jeremiah chapter 13, beginning in verse one. Thus says the Lord to me, go and buy a linen loincloth and put it around your waist and do not dip it in water. So I bought a loincloth according to the word of the Lord and put it around my waist. And the word of the Lord came to me a second time, take the loincloth that you have bought, which is around your waist, and arise and go to the Euphrates and hide it there in the cleft of the rock. So I went and hid it by the Euphrates as the Lord commanded me. And after many days, the Lord said to me, arise, go to the Euphrates and take from there the loincloth that I commanded you to hide there. Then I went to the Euphrates and dug, and I took the loincloth from the place where I had hidden it, and behold, the loincloth was spoiled. It was good for nothing. Uh, then the word of the Lord came to me, thus says the Lord, even so, I will spoil the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. This evil people who refuse to hear my words who stubbornly follow their own heart and have gone after other gods to serve them and worship them, shall be like this loincloth, which is good for nothing. For as the loincloth clings to the waist of a man, so I made the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah cling to me, declares the Lord, that they might be for me a people, a name, a praise, and a glory, but they would not listen." Uh, Jeremiah is told then, you see, to take a linen waistband, probably linen that was an undergarment, worn close to the skin. That's the kind of thing that is implied in verse 11 where it says, so I made the whole house of Israel cling to me. And he was to take it and go to the Euphrates near Babylon and bury it 
in rock and then wait for a while. And then he would go dig it up and he did so and it was ruined. Uh, I don't know if you've ever lost your underwear, but that's essentially what happened. I, I did, by the way, lose underwear one time. Uh, it was interesting. We needed to have a new washer and a dryer. They had sort of died. One of the two had dry, uh, died, and so it was, they were old, and so we replaced both of them. And so the uh, people came to, to change them out and bring the new washer and dryer, and they took the old ones away. They said, anything you need to get there? And, no, no, just go ahead and take it. And it turns out all of my underwear was in the dryer that they took away. So I had to go buy completely new underwear. That has nothing to do with the text, by the way. It is not an illustration. But it, it did come to mind as a story because uh, here was Jeremiah uh, ruining his underwear. But the thing is that uh, the, the principle is still the same. The best would become the worst. And it's not that the loincloth was the best, but they represented Israel and Judah. That's the connection that is made in this text. Verse 11, Israel and Judah are a people for renown and praise and glory of the Lord. They were meant to be as close to God as possible. That's the significance of the loincloth. They would cling to God, and God would cling to them. And so it's a glorious image of the kind of relationship God desired for his people. But they didn't listen. They bowed down to other gods. They served other gods, and they became worthless. They were supposed to be special but they became worthless. Philip Ryken writes, the linen belt was meant to be a beautiful picture of God's relationship with his people. God wants us to be bright and clean. He wants us to wrap around us his waist like an embrace. Uh, he calls attention to the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which begins with this question, what is the chief end of man? And you know the answer to that question, I'm sure, those of you who have come here this evening. Only people like you would know the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the first question at least. I don't know the rest of it, but I do know the first question. What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is what? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. To glorify God, shine in such a way as to show God to be as beautiful and as radiant as possible to a watching world. And if we don't do that, the one thing we were designed to do will never be accomplished. Our lives will be worthless. And so Riken writes, the chief purpose and ultimate goal of human beings is to be wrapped around God's waist like a fashion accessory. When we are at our very best, we adorn God with glory. Riken says, if your whole life is devoted to the service of Christ, you are like a linen belt around God's waist. You look great. But if you are trusting in money, ability, family, government, or anything besides God, then what you are doing is useless. If your life is not dedicated to bringing honor and renown to God, then it is worth about as much as a belt buried in a pile of dirt. You are worthless when it comes to your primary purpose, giving glory to God. You were made to be the brightest ornament in all creation, but the corruption of the best becomes the worst. That's the first image that we have in chapter 13, the linen belt. The second image is a wine jug. Verse uh, 12 and following says this, you shall speak to them this word. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, every jar shall be filled with wine. And they will say to you, do we not indeed know that every jar will be filled with wine? And then you will say to them, thus says the Lord, behold, I will fill with drunkenness, all the inhabitants of this land. 
the kings who sit on David's throne, the priests, the prophets, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will dash them one against another, fathers and sons together, declares the Lord. I will not pity or spare or have compassion that I should not destroy them. Hear and give ear, be not proud, for the Lord has spoken. Uh, this is a riddle that uh, Jeremiah uses uh, to sort of do what some people would call rope-a-dope. In other words, sort of uh, suck these people in to thinking one thing, and he turns the tables on them. Uh, but let me give you a little bit of a background, because I think uh, uh, it's kind of a riddle for us. Well, the idea of wine is kind of a riddle for us, we evangelicals. Uh, we evangelicals tend to have a dim view of wine. Uh, because we live in a culture that has problems with alcohol. We know that alcohol is destructive of families, uh, families with alcoholics. Alcohol is an escape from problems, an escape from stress. Overconsumption of alcohol certainly is a serious issue in our culture. But not everybody has that same view of alcohol. I think we should be aware of that. Uh, there are those who uh, understand a really good wine, uh, versus just ordinary wine. The connoisseurs of wine appreciate the wonderful and subtle, distinctive tastes of various wines. They can tell the difference between ordinary wine and really good wine, and nothing could be better for them than to enjoy a really good glass of wine among good friends. Uh, I've spent some time in Europe. Europe, uh, as a culture, values wine. It's served at almost every meal and uh, they don't nearly have quite the alcoholism problem that we do here in the United States, although they do have some of it. Uh, it's interesting, so you have in our culture some different views about how to understand wine. The biblical view is actually closer to the second view that I described. The biblical view actually looks at wine to be valuable. Uh, listen to Psalm 104, which reads this way, "'From your lofty abode you water the mountains, Speaking about God, the earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for a man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. So there's a sense in which wine is given a positive review as coming from the hand of God. Psalm 4 is similar. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. And so Jesus uh, also, remember, turned water into wine at Cana and not just ordinary wine. He turned it into the best wine that was recognized. And so uh, there's that particular biblical view. At the same time, the Bible recognizes the danger of intoxication. Except for Nazarite vows, the Bible allows wine to be consumed. Now, you have to remember back in those days, uh, water was not always as healthy as wine was. And so that uh, figures into the equation in some fashion. But the Bible sees intoxication as a serious sin. So Proverbs chapter 20, wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Uh, Proverbs 23, verse 20 and following, Be not among drunkards or among gluttonous eaters of meat, for the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty, and slumber will clothe them with rags. Uh, with proper uh, restraint, then, wine is good, and without proper restraint, wine is bad. In fact, very, very bad. So the corruption of the good becomes the worst. It fits the principle, doesn't it? Well, in this passage, Jeremiah says, every jug is to be filled with wine. And the people say, hear, hear. 
Let's drink it up. But they missed Jeremiah's point because the jugs that he's speaking of will be filled to the point of intoxication. The jugs are not the actual wine jugs. They represent the people of Judah. Uh, John Calvin writes, they indeed all knew that bottles were made for wine, but they did not understand that they were the bottles. You see, the people are supposed to be the apple of God's eye, his special children, but sins have made the good wine into awful wine. Verse 15 says that pride seems to be added to the mix. Hear and give ear, be not proud, for the Lord has spoken. They're supposed to be filled with the knowledge of the Lord, filled with intimacy, filled with the love of God. God will pour into them instead, however, because of their sin, the wine of his wrath. Uh, Philip Ryken writes, if his people will not wrap their praise around him, he will pour the wine of his wrath into them. Jerusalem will be turned into one big fraternity party. Kings, priests, and prophets will roll out the barrel together. Fathers and sons will drink together and then smash into one another in drunken demolition. These people won't even be able to walk home without crashing into one another. That's the image that Jeremiah has, or God has, through Jeremiah for these people. Now, by the way, just in a matter of full disclosure, you are aware that I spent a career as a professor at West Virginia University. And for a number of years, the Princeton Review published the list of the most significant party schools in the United States. And West Virginia University, for several years, was number one on that list. So I understand a little bit about what happens. Uh, The worst happens after a big football game is won, then there is a particular section of Morgantown, West Virginia, that pretty much fell apart. And it was a mess, and the police had to deal with a lot of the issues related to the consumption of alcohol. It was a drunken orgy when we beat Pitt, for instance, which was the only team that we must beat every year in order for the coach to maintain his job. You had to beat Pitt. And so in this prophecy, everyone's affected by this, by the way, in Jeremiah's prophecy. Kings and priests and prophets and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem are caught up into this. The king throws a party, everyone crashes it, the king doesn't care, the more the merrier, but the outcome is destructive, literally self-destructive. So Jeremiah has sucked them into his riddle with his statement about wine. And then he turns the table on them and he shows that they are the jugs and they'll be filled with the worst of wine. And once again, the corruption of the best becomes the worst. And so we have the linen belt and we have the jugs of wine. And the next image that we have in chapter 13 is the dark mountain. Jeremiah 13, verses 16 and following. Give glory to the Lord your God before he brings darkness, before your feet stumble on the twilight mountains. And while you look for light, he turns it into gloom and makes it deep darkness. But if you will not listen, my soul will weep in secret for your pride. My eyes will weep bitterly and run down with tears because the Lord's flock has been taken captive. Now, having been in West Virginia for 30 years or so, uh, I know something about mountains and darkness. 
I remember the West Virginia mountains, which in their full glory uh, took place in the fall, and it was a glorious time to be out in the mountains. Uh, whether you were at the sunrise on the mountains or whether you were in midday when low humidity and bright sun where you could see an expansive territory on an overlook or whether you were in the mountains at sunset, it was glorious to be in the mountains. Uh, one time we took a drive into the mountains to Canaan uh, Valley to a place called Dolly Sods, which is a ridge overlooking Canaan Valley, a beautiful place. And Matt's... Uh, a future bride, Crystal, was with us. First time that she'd been to uh, West Virginia, first time she'd been to the mountains, we wanted to show her this very, very special place. Although it was uh, raining and drizzling and foggy and cloudy when we took her up there to no avail, it was a pretty much worthless trip. But I have been to the West Virginia mountains uh, during the fall of the year, and I have been, for instance, uh, in times of full sunshine with the leaves at their peak. And I remember sometimes traveling uh, and then walking on a path toward a wonderful overlook at sunset. And then being out there a little too late and finding myself in the middle of the trip when darkness descended. And the thing about being in the mountains in West Virginia, there is no ambient light around. If you don't have a full moon, you can't see the hand in front of your face. And that's the image that we have in this particular setting in Jeremiah 13. You have the darkness of a mountain which is turned into gloom, deep darkness. So there is stumbling. And so trying to navigate our way out of that path uh, after the sun has set is no small task. And that's the kind of image that we have here. No ambient light because there's no civilization around it. This is more than a dreary fog. It's a palpable darkness. We grope about without reference points. We stumble along as we try to make our way along the path. But you can't tell the direction. It's easy to get lost. And it's just as likely that you might fall over a precipice as find your way back along the path. Uh, John Milton in Samson Agonistes wrote, Oh, dark, dark, dark amid the blaze of noon, irrevocably dark, total eclipse without all hope of day. That's the image that we are supposed to understand from this dark mountain. Pride, again, is at the center of the sin that causes this darkness, and Jeremiah's version of pride goes before a fall in this particular case. The mountains are meant to be beautiful, and so once again, the best becomes the worst. Mountains in their glory are an extraordinary pleasure to behold and experience. Mountains in the darkness are frightful places filled with dangers, disasters waiting to happen. By the way, this past week, while we were in our comfortable Shell Point residences, uh, Pat Davini was climbing Mount Sinai. You may not have known that she was on a trip. She went to Israel, and then she's now on a trip to Egypt and the Sinai, and I think probably Jordan, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, she uh, wrote to me that she was concerned because she understood that, that, that the climb was uh, very severe and required a great deal of, uh, of capacity, and she was worried about making it to the top 
of Mount Sinai. I wrote her back and said, well, I thought that she would do well and make it to the top of Mount Sinai. My concern is that once she got to the top of Mount Sinai and saw God, that she wouldn't make it back. <laughs> it's dangerous to see God. Uh, but she did make it back, by the way, and it was a strenuous uh, engagement. But the idea is that mountains are meant to be beautiful, but when the pride gets in the way and sin overtakes a nation, the mountains turn into places of frightful darkness. Corruptio optimi pessima, the better the thing, the worse the abuse. That's the principle once again. And then the next uh, image that we have is of the royal family. We pick it up in verse 18. Say to the king and the queen mother, take a lowly seat, for your beautiful crown has come down from your head. The cities of the Negev are shut up with none to open them. All Judah is taken into exile, wholly into exile. Lift up your eyes and see those who come from the north. Where is the flock that was given you, your beautiful flock? What will you say when they set as head over you those whom you yourself have taught to be friends to you? Will not pangs take hold of you like those of a woman in labor? Now, there's a bit of an historical context to this. Uh, Jehoiachin was taken captive as the king of Israel. He only reigned for about three months. He was taken captive uh, in 597 as one of the exports of uh, exiles uh, took place to Babylon. His mother, Nehushta, was also taken uh, with him, and so they lost their beautiful crowns. And so the ironies were they went from the highest seat to the lowest. They went from the throne to the bench. They went from the penthouse to the outhouse. In other words, you could say they went from one throne to a very different kind of throne. Uh, the king, you know, needs subjects to be kings. And Jeremiah says in verse 20, where is the flock that was given you, your beautiful flock? Here was a king and his mother, and they had no subjects. He was a king in name only. Uh, their companions, their friends became their rulers. What will you say when they set his head over you, those whom you yourself have taught to be friends to you? In verse 21. How complete and total is the kingdom that is being wrested from them. Verse 19 says this, The cities of the Negev are shut up with none to open them. All Judah is taken into exile, wholly taken into exile. You know, when the cities of the Negev are taken, the conquest is complete. You realize that uh, most conquerors would stop at the Negev. It's just a desert. Why would they even go in there? But all of Judah is in exile. Even the bare towns that they would find in the desert have been taken over. And so the royal family, the king of Israel, was meant to be the best of the best, the object of the greatest honor in Israel and Judah, aside from God himself. But now we find the royal family without a land, without a people, without a crown. How miserable. How far have they fallen? So once again, corruption of the best has become the worst. Corruptio optima pessima, the better the thing, the worse the abuse. Philip Ryken again, it is hard to read these verses without thinking of the near collapse of the English royal family during the 1990s. David might remember something about uh, this kind of thing. In her annual speech on Christmas Day, 1994, Queen Elizabeth told the British people that she had had a bad year. She said it was annus horribilis, 
She said it was a horrible year. If she really had wanted Reichen rights to show off her Latin, she could have quoted Aristotle, corruptio optimi pessima. When a royal wedding is followed by adultery, deception, divorce, and death, the best has become the worst. Now, there is still an England today and still a monarchy, but there would be no Judah. There would be no Jerusalem for nearly two generations after the kingdom fell. Whatever the glories of the British Empire, Israel was meant to be the crown jewel of the kingdom that ever, of all the kingdom that ever existed. And she would be completely overwhelmed. And so you have this royal family that is the other Im another image of the best becoming the worst. And then you have this image of the maiden in verse 22. And if you say in your heart, why have these things come upon me? For it is the greatness of your iniquity that your skirts are lifted up and you suffer violence. And then in verse 25, this is your lot, the portion I have measured out to you, declares the Lord, because you have forgotten me and trusted in lies. I myself will lift up your skirts over your face and your shame will be seen. I have seen your abominations, your adulteries, your neighings, your lewd whorings on the hills and the field. Woe to you, O Jerusalem! How long will it be before you are made clean? The beautiful virgin bride of Yahweh turns into a common whore, a prostitute. You might look good on the outside, but God will lift up her skirts to reveal the attire of her trade, which is spiritual prostitution. It's never good for the prostitute, by the way. We we perhaps joke about it being the oldest profession, but prostitutes are perhaps the most abused people in the world. They are taken advantage of. They are susceptible to gross violence. And when the violence happens, no one cares. They're just a prostitute. The corruption of the best has become the worst. The shame will be seen by all, no longer hidden. Sometimes we hear reports even in this day and age, of respectable housewives actually moonlighting as prostitutes. But no more, everyone will know. What a striking difference in image it is. The bride versus the prostitute. The epitome of beauty, the epitome of hardness underneath a cosmetic attempt to hide a life of abuse and pain. Corruptio, optima, pessima. The better the thing, the worse the abuse. And then we need to think about where we go from here as we have read these images of collapse and destruction and deterioration among the best of the best. What about redemption? Verse 27, I have seen your abominations, your adulteries, neighings, your lewd whorings on the field, on the hills in the field. Woe to you, O Jerusalem. And then this question is asked, how long will it be before you are made clean? How long? How long will you remain unclean? Uh, the clue is given back in verse 23 when we find God saying through Jeremiah, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. You know, these people don't have it in them to do good. Uh, there's no more than changing the skin or color or, or spots of a, of a leopard uh, or, or some other kind of animal. How long will these people remain unclean? They'll, they'll remain unclean forever as long as you think that you can clean yourself up. They can't do anything about it. How long? 
How long indeed? I can tell you how long. How long is until Jesus Christ cleanses you? That's how long. Until Jesus Christ cleanses you. I want you to think about transferring these images that we've seen in Jeremiah 13 into a New Testament alternative. We have filthy linen. We have bad wine. We have utter darkness on the mountains. We have the loss of a kingdom. We have a prostitute instead of a bride. Let's think about those images one after the other and put them in a New Testament context. Let's think first of all of the clean linen. Uh, Isaiah chapter 64 says, we've all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. But then because of Christ, we have Revelation 19.8. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. In Jesus Christ, there is redemption from this uncleanness. Now let's think of wine, the bad wine versus the cup of the new covenant, Luke chapter 22, verse 20. And likewise the cup that they had eaten, uh, excuse me, likewise the cup after they had eaten saying, the cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So Jesus consecrates wine that is the best wine. The wine of God's wrath has already been consumed not by us, but has been consumed by Christ. He has drunken to the dregs the wine of the wrath of God in our place. Now we get to drink the best wine. The new covenant wine has replaced the wine that is corrupt. Then what about the utter darkness that takes place on a mountain once the light has gone versus the light of the world? Darkness is a metaphor for people living in sin. We find it over and over again in the New Testament, John 3, 19, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Luke eleven thirty four. your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light, but when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. But when Jesus comes, he comes as the light of the world. John 8, 12, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In 1 John 2, 8, at the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. No longer do we have to stumble in the dark, in the mountains of darkness. No, not because Jesus Christ is the light of the world. And then what about the loss of the kingdom that we found with respect to Jehoiachin and his mother uh, versus the crowns of glory that we find in the New Testament? Uh, the lost dominion is now found in Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8 says, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And then James chapter 1, verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So you have the a crown of righteousness and the crown of glory and the crown of life given to those who are Christ followers. 
And then Revelation 2.10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. That's restored royalty, isn't it? Not for a king of Israel, not for a king of Israel, but for us, restored glory and royalty. And then what about the image of the prostitute versus the virgin bride? We who are all prostitutes, spiritually speaking, have been redeemed to a new virginity. We are, in fact, the beautiful bride of Christ. So in Revelation chapter 21, verse 2, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So in every case, the tables have turned under the new covenant, haven't they? All of these images of corruption and destruction have been reversed and restored in Jesus Christ. Corruptio optima pessima, the corruption of the best has become the worst, but now the redemption of the worst has become the best under Jesus Christ. So praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him for his marvelous work of redemption. Praise the Lord Jesus for his work on our behalf and praise the Spirit for working in us that very redemption. And may God receive all the glory. Heavenly Father, we read these images and they can be quite depressing when we recognize what happened to the nation of Israel during those times in Jeremiah's age. But at the same time, Father, we recognize that you have transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light because of Jesus Christ. We're thankful that you have, by your Holy Spirit, given us new life in him, creating in us a life that we could never have created by ourselves, cleansing us from our filthiness, and enabling us, Father, to live a life of glorifying Jesus Christ, fulfilling the mission that you've given to us. We are thankful for all of these things and praise you for it in Jesus' name.